Hello, food world. It's Robert Crutchfield, your favorite foodie friend from Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast. Today, we got something really, really interesting. You ever watch the show Feral on the Outdoor Channel? You wonder how it is they go out into the woods and catch these random animals and, and cook them and eat them? We got the guy that can tell you. And while we're at it, he's going to fill us in on some of the basics of uh, Hmong cuisine from Northeast Asia. Today, we're sitting down with Yia Vang. Here's Yia. Okay, it's time to get to know another amazing, incredible chef. I always like to start with the beginning, so to speak. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. And for those that are not familiar, just give them a little of the backstory of how it is you got to where you are now. And then we'll get into uh, what you got coming up. Awesome. Yeah, my name is Yia Vang. I'm here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, I... We have a restaurant called Union Monk Kitchen. And then we also have another one coming out this fall called V9. So that's in the process right now. The other thing is, yeah, we're just real busy doing a few different things around here. We make monk food. And a lot of times we get the question of what is monk or what, what are monk people? And, you know, we, I just say that we're an indigenous tribe that lives in the mountains of Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand area, we are not Laotian, we are not Thai, we are not Vietnamese, uh, we are Hmong. And so, yeah, just a kind of a displaced people group for generations and generations. We just lived in the mountains. Uh, and then a lot of Hmong people ended up settling here in the Midwest in the Twin Cities area because after the Vietnam War, which most people know about the Vietnam War from Vietnam and Southern Vietnam area. But while that was going on, there was what was called the secret war in Northern Laos. And our people were contracted out as paramilitary troops by the U.S. government and the CIA to fight a war in the mountains of Laos against the communist regime that was coming in from the North. And so through that and through war and after the U.S. pulled out in 75, our people group was genocide because of helping the U.S. government. And then we became refugees. And after that, we ended up in Thailand in refugee camp. Uh, and that's where my parents were, where they met. And that's where most of uh, my siblings were born. And then we came to the U.S. in 1988. And then the reason why we're, we settled in the Midwest is the Midwest here has, especially in the Twin Cities, has one of the largest uh, refugee relocation nonprofit groups that helped with that process in the 1980s. And so in the metro area, there's about here, there's about 75,000 Hmong people here in the metro area in Twin Cities and St. Paul, St. Paul and Minneapolis. And so, okay, yeah, so we get to. So instead of going to one of the big restaurant cities like LA, Las Vegas, New Orleans, New York, you basically chose to thrive where you were planted. Well, I don't think we chose to thrive where we were planted. I think that we had no choice. You know, uh, it's not, we didn't choose to where we landed or we didn't choose where we were going. You know, back when the war first started, the U.S. government told our people that we're going to have a handshake deal here, fight for our country. No matter what happens, we will take care of you to come to America. And when they pulled out in 75, everybody was left behind. It was a genocide. So at that time, there was about 300,000 Hmong people that lived in the mountains of Laos. And these people, our people helped 
in this war, in this fight. And then when they were pulled out, after it was all said and done, 60, about 55 to 60,000 Hmong people were slaughtered in this genocide. So it wasn't like, yeah, it wasn't like we had a choice to be like, hey, like, yeah, we choose to live here in the Midwest. Like, no, we got here and it was like, hey, you have to earn your way in America too. And so that's what my parents did. Well, my point is, even as you grew up and became more successful and, and perhaps maybe had some options, but you chose not to take them. You chose to, to stay among your community. and Yeah, and, well, that's uh, what our community, that's what our people is about is staying within family. So there was no point in me trying to go to, you know, LA or New York or Chicago, because this is where our community is, this is where our family is. Our people have always been known to be stronger as a whole and not, you know, it's this idea that if we're together, you know, we will be stronger and we can make it through anything. And that mentality came out of the war. It came out of survival, surviving in the, in the you know, in the refugee camps of knowing that we have to stick together. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the Hmong cuisine? And the characteristics of that, what's, what, what are the typical proteins? What are the typical cooking methods? Yeah. The, so the our, our, our food, all deal, really. <laughs> yeah. So monk food, I always tell people the monk food, if you want to just talk about flavor profile wise, it's kind of like a lot of Southeast Asian food. You know, some of our aromatics are lemongrass, ginger, garlic, shallots, Thai chilies, you know, some of our sauces we use are oyster sauce, fish sauce, shrimp paste, crab paste. A lot of our proteins are, you know, your basic proteins, different kinds of fish, no beef, pork, chicken, whatever. And then I would say that one of the big things that we are really known for is our produce. Most people are agricultural people. The word Hmong actually translates. Uh, the Chinese called us the Miao people, which literally translates to sons of the soil or sprouts, like, you know, coming out of the ground because our people work the ground so much that's actually you know kind of a name that we bear and you know every Hmong family has their own garden when i say garden i'm not talking about a cute little garden that's in the back of your house i'm talking about anywhere from three, three to five to even 10 acres and that's just a garden for us you know and then that's where we grow our all our produce and we harvest that for the family for uh, people around for our churches for our community here in the twin cities some of the best Farmers for farmers market are Hmong farmers, you know, and so a lot of vegetables. So if you look at Hmong food, I would say that, again, like I said, it's a philosophy of food. It's this idea that the philosophy is, is that we live, that we have a living world around us, no matter what happens, you know, we can use that living world to create dishes and food for all our people to, to be a part of. And also what it does is it nourishes our body and it brings our community together. And that's the philosophy. No matter where we go, we'll find a way to survive and thrive. That's the philosophy of Hmong food. If you want to talk about basic uh, flavors, it's, you know, I would say if you want to know our people, you got to know our food because our cultural DNA is intricately woven into the foods that we eat. You know, what, what does that mean? Well, that means that our food tells our story. And if you eat our food, you actually see all these different cultures that we have rubbed shoulders with and these different countries that our people have been in, you know, and, and it builds into our, the food that we eat. Regionally, Hmong food all around the country, all around the U.S. is a little different because of the different seasons and the different terroirs and the different lands that we get to grow our produce and product from. So, yeah, I mean, that's a basic, like, you know, you know, 10 mile high kind of view, you know, of Hmong food. Sort of the uh, world's first fusion cuisine, I guess. Yeah, I don't like the word fusion. I think the word fusion means that you don't really care about other cultures. I, I like the word forging. 
you know, so I always just say that our, our, our food is a forging of different cultures together. Cause when you forge something together, you know, it's unbreakable and it becomes part of it. So if you want like all the foods that we are, the, the food and the dishes that are part of our cuisine or part of the repertoire of our cuisine is, you know, based on the countries that we've been in and, you know, here, even in America, we eat different here than we do in the mountains of Laos right now, you know? Sure. Uh, well, and for that matter, Americans in New Mexico don't eat the same way as Americans in North Carolina. So yep. I think that's a, I think as far as food, at least that's a, a common thread that runs through, uh, most cultures and, uh, most countries, even some of the, the kind of small ones. Even mm -hmm. some that are small as a single island, the, the cuisine can vary from one side of the island to the other. Mm -hmm. If you had to pick one dish that you said you would think that just exemplified Hmong cuisine, uh, could you tell us what that would be and, and, and describe it a little for us? Yeah, I would say that there's no one dish that just describes Hmong cuisine. You know, I asked my mom, I said, Mom, you know, what's the best way to describe Hmong food? And she always says balance. She says, everything that we put on the table to eat you know, when we have dinner, or we have lunch, or we have breakfast, it's all about balance. You know, so for example, I say monk food is made up of four elements on the table. You have your rice, you have your protein, you have your vegetables, and then you have your hot sauce. All four of those <laughs> elements, all four of those dishes, you know, create balance. So you, there's no way of me talking about one dish without talking about the other, because one dish is, does not stand alone. It is, it is the ethos of our people. That one, our, our, our people group is made of 18 different tribes or 18 different clans. And one tribe, one clan does not stand alone. You need the power of the group to succeed. And that's the same thing with Hmong food. For us to just say, oh, Hmong sausage is my favorite thing or braised pork greens is my favorite thing. Like it, it doesn't work like that. You know, you can say that, but you can't talk about the Hmong sausage without talking about the hot sauce that you dip in it. And you can't talk about the hot sauce without talking about the sticky rice that you eat it with so that it helps balance out the, you know, the heat of the, the hot sauce. And so to just say that there's one dish, I would say that it's wrong, but it has to come as a collective whole. Well, and I should think the nomadic nature of your people plays into that as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't understand how that would play into it, you know, but. Well, yeah. just all the different places they've, the, the different 18 tribes that traveled through and different other places they've been impacted by and, and. They pick up this idea here and that idea there. <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm talking about like balance of flavors, you know, sure. because like you have the rice there to help mellow out some of the salty and very, you know, strong flavors of the, of the meat, you know, but at times they didn't have refrigeration. So you had to heavily salt and cure meats that you had to dry out over the, uh, you know, over the fire and smoke it out. And then you would chop that up and you would mix it with the greens or the vegetables because that would help flavor the greens and the vegetables. You know, and then you would eat that with the rice and then you would also, because there's no heat, you know, like you need that heat or, you know, that, that spice. And that's why you would have the hot sauce. So, you know, again, like, I don't think that has anything to do with nomadic, but I think that that has more to do with, you know, playing with the flavor profile that as you eat together, you know, all these different elements play a role into, you know, this. So, so again, I can't talk about one dish because if you just had the meat by itself, like, I, you know, my dad does this, like, you know, this kind of almost like this dried beef. And if you just had that by yourself, it's so salty, it's so powerful that it's overwhelming. But without the sweetness of the sticky rice, you know, it just overtakes your mouth. And so I, I just say that, like, you know, to understand monk food means to understand balance. Sure, sure. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your existing restaurant and especially how that 
differs from the new restaurant that you're going to be opening? Yeah. So the existing restaurant we have is uh, called Union Monk Kitchen, and it's been here for the last like, what, three years, four years. And, and, you know, I, th- I think one of the things is that Union Monk Kitchen is like, a, I jokingly call it the opening act, you know, is just getting people familiar with monk food. And then we want to build upon that. So Vinay itself, you know, Vinay is the name of the refugee camp I was born in. My mom and dad met in that camp. They lived there for 10 years. Most of us were born in that camp. And, and so it is this, this camp that from 1975 to 1992, there were, I think, 90,000 Hmong people that came through there. And 90% of them, or 90,000 people came through there. And 90% of them were Hmong people. And the majority of those 90% end up here in the Midwest. So it's a very big, the name itself is very well known in our community. And so we, I always say that Vinay is a love letter to my mom and dad. And so a lot of those dishes are coming from their table. It's a representation of their table. It is also a representation of what's the hold in the future, right? So we get to do different dish. We get to do dishes that remind us of our past to know where we are here. And then it gives us uh, a hope or trajectory of our future as a people group and as a family. And so a lot of the dishes, again, are split up into different sections, you know, and, and it's kind of like building your own dinner, you know, building your own meal and you can order all these different things. And it, that's how you build your own meal together. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to be like, oh yeah, it's a composed dish. No, not at all. It's going to be different elements. It's like that whole thing that I'm talking about balance. You know, you're going to have to, you know, you, you order, you know, different kinds. You have, there's different kinds of rice you can get. There's different kinds of proteins you can get. There's different kinds of vegetables you can get. There are different kinds of hot sauces that you can get. And every one of those elements play a very specific role into how you create that, you know, that dinner with the people around you. Sure. Absolutely. Before times gets away for us, I, I don't want to be remiss in not talking about Feral, your uh, TV yeah. show. Uh, can yeah. you, uh, for those that are not familiar, can you tell us a little bit about the show and what you're trying to do with it and then sort of expand into your, your plans for the new season? Yeah. So the, the show Feral, you know, a few years ago, a producer came up to me and said, hey, we have this idea. We want to put you out into the, you know, the woods, the water, you know, in the boonies, and we're going to go... Uh, catch animals that with a guide we're going to go with the guide out there we're going to catch hunt kill an animal that's either invasive destructive to the ecosystem or animals that most people won't eat you know and so you know i'm like wow this is so awesome this idea literally it is such a long thing to do and that's what my uncles and my you know my parents and and even even you know i would say like my ancestors have done in the mountains of in jungles of laos thailand and vietnam this is what they did and so, so yeah, it was just this kind of funny idea a few years ago. And then we had a proof of concept. It worked. They came on and, you know, we love it. We're, we actually just finished season three, you know, season two is, we'll be dropping in like, I want to say late fall, early summer or sorry, early, early winter coming up here in 2023. So we've, you know, so we, 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 season one is full girl on, an outdoor channel and it's a, such a fun uh, project we get to travel the world I, or the country i get to meet different uh, people and i get to go hunting with them be a little crazy and then we get to you know get this these animals and we get to cook together and then we have to have a great meal together and it's the idea that food is the ultimate equalizer it is the that food is it is a universal language we use to speak to each other so the people from all different walks of life that i get to cook with hunt with and it's it's an incredible show Sounds good. You talk about going out into the boonies or dinks or whatever you call it and, and cooking basically whatever you run across to kill. 
as you can imagine here at Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast, we get a wide range of people. We get chefs at your level and certainly people that could cook almost anything. And we also get people that can uh, barely boil water. that are trying to improve their skills. When you're in an environment like that, how do you, how do you approach the idea of cooking a protein, which you're almost certainly going to be unfamiliar with? Yeah, I think that, I think the one thing is you got to think about the basics, right? So like all your seasoning, all the things you do, you know, it's basic. It's like the, the, the protein might change, but keep your seasoning the same, you know? Like, like the, keep the base, like, you know, you know, it's like the idea of kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid, you know, <laughs> sure. don't try to do too much, you know, crazy things, you know? And so it's like, oh yeah. Or like, even know about the animals, for example, like iguana, you know, like iguana, when we broke it down, it was kind of like squirrels. I'm like, oh yeah, I've done squirrels many times, you know? Uh, sure. Or even, even, you know, like when we had python, like, oh, the, the texture of the python was kind of like calamari, you know, octopus. So I, I, I knew what to do with that, you know? So it's yes. all about just knowing your animal. And then I think that the other thing is to keep all the seasoning the same. Play with the seasoning, you know, the seasoning. You know, I always tell people start with rabbit, wild hog, and venison. Those, you know, start with that. You know, play with that a little bit. And like, you know, whoa. we even did a squirrel episode where the guy made basically chicken dumpling soup, you know, but a squirrel sure. dumpling soup. Sure. You know, so it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, again, just rotate your protein that way you would normally use. Sure, sure. Well, and I'm sure, I'm sure also when you're sitting here and you're looking at this, this animal, like you mentioned texture, you're looking at the texture, you're looking at the fat content. And what I'm hearing is the takeaway, of course, other than the, the spices and whatnot, is to compare the unknown to the known. Mm-hmm. Sit there and think, okay, I've never cooked this particular animal before. And everybody's thinking, well, where do I start? And mm-hmm. it seems like one of your tips would be is compare it to what you know. Does it yep, look like absolutely. a rat? Does it look like a chicken? Yep. It look like pork? Does it? Yeah. It's like, like, you know, it's, it's funny, Robert. Like when we did pheasant, people were like, wait, what? Pheasant? Like, oh, what? I, I don't know. Like you just put it in a slow cooker and then just like, you know, dry the crap out of it. And I'm like, no, it pheasant's like a dark meat. So I'm like, what do you do with duck? You know, like, like, what do you, what do you do with chicken? You know, and there was just kind of talking through that, especially uh, we, we did a uh, Canadian geese, you know, and I was like, dude, this looks like a big steak. It looks like a big venison steak. So you don't have to overcook it, you know, and there's not a lot of fat on it, you know? And so it's just like, you know, taking the time and thinking through that process. I think people freak out first and then they just go berserker and then it's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. It's like, no, man, if you calm down, just take a breath. It's not that hard, you know, evaluate the situation. Well, that was going to be my next point because I also have a background in technology mm-hmm. and I see the same thing there that I do in cooking in that people get intimidated of the unknown. And I think that's why I'm trying to drive home the point of comparing the unknown to the known, because in that sphere, that's exactly what you do. You compare technology to things people already are familiar with. And that's how you get them comfortable mm-hmm. with, with this new idea. And I, I, yep. I think that in teaching cooking, we need to do the same thing a lot more maybe than we do is even though you don't know this, you know this. You just have to think yep. about it for a minute. Yeah. Okay. We talked about the restaurants and the, and the TV show. Anything else going in your, in, in, in your world that people might want to know about? 
Well, currently right now, we, you know, have a few of our locations in the sporting arenas, you know, the Twin Stadium, the Viking Stadium. And then right now we're currently in the middle of Minnesota State Fair. And so that's like one of the big, big things every year. So this year, I think they're projected to have over like 2.3 million people come through in 12 days. So we have a lot of stuff where, you know, we're working on our, you know, we have a stall in there. So we're pumping out food like crazy. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure people are enjoying it too. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> what, what's what's like a lot of high profile chefs? You 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 have a lot of irons in the fire and whatnot. What are the best ways for people to keep in touch? Are there any websites, social media accounts? Yeah, you can follow us at you know on Instagram. It's uh, at Union Monk Kitchen. Uh, you know at V nine M N V. I-N-A-F-A-M-N. That's another one. You can follow us at, follow me personally at, at Yevang70. That's all on Instagram. And then like, you know, we have all medias on Facebook and stuff like that. So yeah, social media, I tell people it's like the fe- best way to see what's going on and to see all the new things that were coming up. And that's where we do a lot of our announcements, you know, and again, you know, or you can just go to our website at Union Kitchen, sorry, UnionMonkitchen.com. You know, you can just go to our website there. Sure, absolutely. Uh, do you have any more tips for people, either about monk cuisine or cooking in general? That no, I just say wherever you are, understand. Like we always say, uh, one of our mantra is that every dish has a narrative. That so you follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the people behind the food. And once you're there, it's actually not about food; it's about people. That food is a catalyst into cultivating great relationships. You want to know people, you got to know their food. And, and, and I don't want, like the thing people are always thinking is like, oh, it's exotic. It's exotic. It's not that exotic. You don't want to know something, you know, once a long time ago, you know, like this idea of like, oh yeah, like we take a tortilla shell and we put protein inside and we put cheese in there and we melt it together and we eat it. That was quote unquote considered exotic, you know? And, and it's, it, in my mind, I'm like, we got to stop thinking about food as exotic, strange, whatever. But we have to think about it through the eyes of curiosity. And when you eat something, you ask yourself, why, why was this made this way? How was this made this way? I want to know the people, the hands, the culture, the heart, the souls behind these food. And I think that that's the curiosity that I want everyone to have. I agree with you. One of my favorites is, and, and uh, there's, there's certain discussions about how uh, traditional they are, but one of the things that fascinates me in the food world is how similar an empanada in Argentina or Venezuela is to a calzone in Italy, especially when these were created at a time where we didn't have the internet or TV well, or whatnot. Well, well yeah, I mean, what, what that just shows us that as culturally is that we understand the idea that you put, you, you take what you have and you stuff it in some, some kind of dough and you either fry it or bake it off. That's a, that's human. Like this, there, and this is like, there's no discovery of food where it goes, oh my gosh, we never thought of that. We, again, like that's why I say that food is a universal language. We speak that language with each other. No matter where you are in the world, you speak that language. Here in the North, they have this thing called the patsies, the pasties, where basically that's the same thing. It's potato, ground beef, season, and you put it in a, you know, you wrap it in dough and you bake it off. And back in, in, <laughs> northern, Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, it was called the Iron Range, you know, where they were the miners. And they yeah. take that and they wrap it in a tinfoil and they go into their, they go down the mines and they, and then they had all these machines that were really warm because those machines were working all the time. Sure. And they put these 
uh, pasties and they put them on top of there to keep it warm. So, and then during break, they don't have to come all the way up. They just open that up and they eat it. You know, I mean, like this is, I mean, you're telling me that in Northern Minnesota, like people were, people had this idea because they knew people that were in, you know, in Ecuador who was doing banana. It's just part of all our cultures. We speak this language. And if we get out of our own way and we quiet ourselves and humble ourselves, we actually see that we have more in common than we do different. Well, this is my point. Everybody, every, and, and people that are familiar with me, people that are familiar with this podcast, they, they know that I'm fascinated with the, the range and the variety of the food world. But one of the things that makes that range and variety so fascinating are all the common threads mm-hmm. that run through it. Absolutely. Especially if you go back a hundred years, a thousand years, et cetera, like with my empanada example, where there was no internet, there was no mail for credit. There was no way for these people to compare notes. And yet Mm -hmm. there's this amazing commonality. Now they may implement it slightly different here versus slightly different there, but there are all these common threads in how people have uh, evolved to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and it's, 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 it's fascinating to me how the food world can be so diverse and uh, have that commonality all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts, Jeff? Good to go. Am I? I think that about does it. We're going to run out of ta- time pretty soon. I certainly thank you. There, there was a lot of good, input. I think there's a lot of people that will be more familiar with your, your people and your culture because of this interview. And certainly because it's our thing, they'll have a better idea of that culture's food heritage and even how they eat to this day. That's great. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you again, Chef. Thank you, sir. Sure. Very much. Thank you, Robert. Appreciate it. Have a good one. You too, sir. Thank you, Chef Fang, for all that great information and allowing us to wow our friends at the next party with our knowledge of Hmong cuisine. For more content like you just heard from Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast, be sure and join us at www.learnmoreeatbetter.com. Until next time.